Starting a podcast can be very time-consuming. I've been doing it for more than three years now, and my biggest challenge was finding a way to distribute my episodes across major audio platforms in a way that was easy, effective, and free to use. That's when I came across Anchor. And the best part is that you can actually make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. So if you're interested, download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. What's going on, everybody? My name is George Khalifa, and this is episode 30 of Let's Grab Coffee. I'm here with my good friend, Jay Rosenzweig, who's the founding partner and CEO of Rosenzweig & Company. Jay is an expert in designing, building, and attracting world-class leaders and teams for his clients. He's also a strong advocate for equity and equality in the workspace. But more importantly, he's very involved in the community and trying to enact positive transformation for, for people around him. Jay, thanks again, man. I really appreciate you Thank you for having this. me. It's awesome. Um, Quick question. So I was doing a bit of digging around. You know, your background studying in McGill is in law and philosophy, but yet you started a world-class search firm. So how did that kind of come about? So it was never a dream of mine to uh, to uh, necessarily practice law per se. Definitely uh, wasn't wasn't particularly interested in the corporate law world. Um, studied at McGill, as you said, for seven years. Um, did a philosophy degree and two law degrees, both common law and civil law, mm. and uh, moved to Toronto um, upon graduation and articled, became a member of the bar. Um, and uh, the funny thing is my wife had seen an ad in the newspaper at, uh, during those days in the mid-90s. Um, we'd actually look at the career section of the newspaper um, mm. and there was an ad which said, looking for a director of business affairs for a large entertainment corporation. If you're interested, please apply to the following recruiting firm okay. who's representing this business. And um, so it looked kind of interesting, entertainment. Um, they were looking for a lawyer with like 12 years experience. I didn't have that uh, by any means, um, but I didn't know anything about recruitment. And uh, I just figured I'll apply to that job and you know maybe one of these recruiters will call me based on my application. and. I'll hustle my way in and maybe they have other jobs in business that, that, that I could look at. Mm. So long story short, I got a call from an associate at that firm. We had a nice conversation. He said, you know, you're like 10 years underqualified <laughs> for that particular job, but you seem to have a very interesting background. Um, and, uh, you know, just tell me about yourself a little bit. And so I did. And he's like, well, you've got a great background. Um, you, you, you handle yourself very well on the phone. We actually have an opening here. Would you be interested in applying? Mm. And uh, so that's kind of uh, one thing led to another. At first, I thought, what am I going to be a headhunter for? I just became a lawyer. Um, but um, the more research I did into the high end of the industry, the more I realized this is a pretty fascinating uh, field. And everyone uh, at this firm had such tremendous uh, educational backgrounds and whatnot that I thought, you know what, maybe there's something to it. Mm. So um, anyway, I joined the firm that was 19... 97. Wow. Uh, Corn Ferry, the largest recruiting firm in the world, bought the firm in uh, 2000, okay. uh, which was a fantastic experience for me. I ended up being uh, a very young partner at the world's largest high-end uh, recruiting firm. Stayed on for a bit there and then decided ultimately to break away and start my own firm in 2004. And okay. uh, yeah, we haven't looked back. Uh, Hunt Scanlon, the uh, publisher out of Chicago, which covers our industry, uh, described us as the leading international boutique. Uh, we're doing work in places all around the world, like Dubai and Brazil and Hong Kong and all across America, working for some of the largest companies in the world. 
um, helping uh, earlier stage businesses and everything in between. So it's been a fun ride. So tell me something. I, I think, I mean, this is a phenomenal journey for one. Um, and your focus is really exclusively with C-suite for the most part, yes. I believe, right? Yes. Um, in, a, in a recent interview, you were kind of talking like just bare bones, the three things or the three pillars you should always focus on really is motivation. You know, do I even want this job? Uh, fit, am I even right for this job? And strength, am, am, I, right. am I the right person for this job? That's right. Um, is, is that advice that you've kind of carried for C-suite, but kind of all roles at, at large? I think it all applies okay. um, because at the end of the day, um, you don't want uh, you know the round peg in the square hole or vice versa. <laughs> um, at the end of the day, you need you need a mutually compatible uh, relationship, um, employer, employee, partners, whatever it might be. Um, at the end of the day, it really has to work. So you need to be motivated uh, to join a business. You need to have the strength to do whatever the job at hand is. Mm. Um, and and if you have that kind of fit, at the end of the day, you're gonna you're, you're gonna have a successful life, a successful career, and and, and you're gonna have the inner peace uh, to do what you need to do um, across all aspects of your life. How did you when you talk sort of about success and a successful career? looking backwards, right, and, mm -hmm. and as you sort of projected what, what was sort of unfolding in your life, mm -hmm. how did you uh, measure success? Like, what did success mean to you then, and what does success mean to you uh, now? Well, success to me always meant the same thing, um, and okay. that is um, having a positive effect on society, having a positive effect, a positive effect on the people in and around you, yeah. um, having great relationships. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and, and really developing a sense of inner peace um, because you know that you're conducting yourself in a way that um, you could be proud of. Mm. Um, so I never really measure success financially. Um, yeah. I measure success in effort uh, and I measure success in, in, in the way you treat others and, and the relationships you develop and affecting the world, as I say, in a very positive way. So, and, and a large part of, of that as well, even as an extension of, of your business is mm -hmm. a report, an annual report that mm -hmm. you publish, which is the Rosenzweig and Company report, but mm -hmm. that, looks at, that looks at really equality and, and uh, equity in, uh, in the workspace mm -hmm. as it relates to gender. Right. Um, can you kind of talk about that? How did that start and, and what yeah. was the motivation behind that really? Yeah, um, so in law school, uh, I, I, uh, I met a very important mentor. Uh, his name is Erwin Kotler. Yes, um, he was a professor there at the time and um, international human rights champion represented uh, pr political prisoners back in the day such as Nelson Mandela and um, Natan Sharansky. In fact, wow. a couple of weeks ago he was uh, nominated by former uh, Prime Minister um, Paul Martin for the Nobel Peace He's Prize. Yeah. Um, and uh, he went on to become a parliamentarian and, and uh, Canada's Minister of Justice. And uh, so here I am in the business world um, staying in touch with Professor Kotler and, and, and observing his actions and mm -hmm. a couple of the things that he did inspired me, um, particularly to, to write the women's report. And that was the fact that he, he was the first man on the women's caucus. Uh, and he also um, transformed our Supreme Court into the most gender representative in the world at that time. And I thought to myself, you know, it'd be interesting to look at, this was 2006, to look at the um, uh, status of women uh, mm -hmm. in the corporate world. Um, and as you probably know, uh, all public companies in Canada are required to disclose the uh, five highest paid executive officers in their ranks. So I looked at 
the 100 largest publicly traded companies in Canada mm -hmm. and looked at the five highest paid. So let's say the pool of 500 top executive officers in Canada and measured literally what percentage of those 500 top executive officers were women. Mm. And what I discovered at that time in our first report was the number was 4.6%. I thought the numbers would be low, wow. uh, but I, I never uh, thought that they would be that low. Um, if you fast forward to today, um, we're just under 10%. So the good news is that uh, the numbers have doubled, but the bad news is that um, you know, we're, we're, under, we're under 10%. Yeah. Um, so that's, that's become, in addition to um, human rights generally, women's rights has become a very uh, particularly uh, important project for me. Yeah, and, and actually a highlight in the report, which I really like, and I, I thought I'd just kind of disclose here, um, it says that five, there's you know, 540 uh, named executive officers mm -hmm. uh, at Canada's 100 largest uh, public companies. Yes. Out of that 540, 51 are women. How does that make you feel? It, it doesn't make me feel too good. <laughs> yeah. um, you know, first of all, I think that um, businesses are doing themselves a disservice by, um, you know, not tapping uh, deeply enough into 50% of the population. Yeah. Um, uh, we know that from study after study, be it Harvard studies and McKinsey studies, that um, the more diversity you have around the table, the more, um, the better the business results, mm. because it stands to logic. The more diversity, the more creativity, um, the more uh, the bigger ideas that will come out of the table. Yeah. Um, rather than having a boardroom of ten seventy-year-old white people, <laughs> right? It, well, it's inevitable that based on different experiences yeah. <clears throat> and di different demographics, you, you're, you're going to have uh, great perspectives, right. including for you know a simple example would be in the consumer space, like. How, how couldn't you, um, you know, tap into half the population in the consumer space, right, to get ideas on, on, on what might work and what might not? And, and I love that you actually come with a, with a solution. So I was, uh, as I was listening to this a little more, you said something that, that really resonated. And you said basically what's happening is people are tapping into the Rolodex, mm -hmm. right? And everybody has, you know, I, I'm assuming, a good network, hopefully. And what you're doing is, whether it's technology or relationship-based, you're tapping into the old Rolodex of relationships that you already have but most of them from research are comprised of men. Right, so by definition, if, uh, if, if 90% of the pool at the top levels is male, if, mm -hmm. you're, if you're tapping into the traditional pool, yeah. you're just recycling the same old, same old. Um, so so what should companies right. do in that sense, like if, if that's what they're already doing? So you need to do ori or the original research okay. um, like we do. Yeah. Um, what we do with our clients is we try to understand, okay, what are the business objectives underlying your decision to make this really important executive hire. And then we develop a customized research strategy designed to meet the business issues at play. Mm. It's a very labor-intensive process. We, uh, uh, we have as good a network as anybody, um, but, but we only supplement our projects with, um, with, with the, the current network that we have. We dive deep. We go levels below to see if there's up-and-comers who, who might work. Um, and we actually specialize as well in diversity search. Um, okay. Um, so you really and, and put that, it into focus. And, and that, uh, that's a whole other sophisticated approach that, uh, that a lot of people really don't, don't get um, the importance of. Mm. Um, so uh, we're, we're very big on that, and, and it's very uh, consistent with my worldviews. And, and, and uh, from, our, from an execution point of view, we try to marry the execution 
to our philosophies. Mm. And, and I just, maybe last point on this, I, sure. I, I think there's a lot of optimism. And again, one of the things I, I heard you say, just for the context, uh, so people don't lose too much hope and faith, but uh, it's interesting. I have three stats quick. 60% of uh, university grads are now female. 50% of the workspace is female. 50% of provincial premiers, this, I mean, was, was really interesting, are female as well. And so a, a word that you use is inertia, right? Mm -hmm. uh, we're gaining momentum. Maybe it's not at the pace that we'd like it, but to reassure people listening and watching this that there is, there is a positive sign. I agree. I, I actually uh, always say that I like to look at the glass as being half full. Um, and I think in this case it is. There's tons of inertia, mm -hmm. um, even in a broader sense. Uh, if you look at uh, things like Time's Up, um, the Me Too movement, yeah. um, uh, people are being much more cognizant of, of some of the bad stuff that's happened historically and also really trying to focus on even um, forcing oneself not to, not, not to be um, potentially infected by subconscious bias. So the more, mm. the, the more present we are in, in really understanding consciously um, that we need to, to, to put more effort into diversity, I think the better the results, and, uh, and I'm optimistic. We're paying attention to this issue more and more. They say I got into the issue in 2006 before it was sexy. <laughs> now everyone's on the bandwagon. So I kind of have a little bit of credibility in that I got in earlier. Yeah. You almost uh, like pioneered it from, from backing it up, right? It's, uh, so it's been, it's been a very gratifying ride in that, in that sense. But it doesn't feel too good uh, this, you know, at, this, at this moment in time to be just hovering around 10%. I think that the speed will will will, uh, will accelerate. It will accelerate, though. Now, um, this is maybe personal curiosity, sure. but I'm sure people have the, have this, and this is an open conversation, yeah. right? And uh, so, so I, I just want to, kind of, from your perspective, uh, when you talk, I think you use the word systematic barriers, you know, and and you said, well, sometimes women will face the challenge that they have kids at home, and all of a sudden, you know, at work, it kind of makes things a little cloudy. Mm -hmm. Talk to me about some of those barriers, but but more importantly, what I want to know from you is, do you with this 10 percent? now that that's being increased is it genuinely that companies actually care about this or is it th so that because it's become more transparent with certain movements that came up that from a csr perspective they're trying to you know be more adhesive to it i just i just want to well i think you'll always have those who uh who live uh, more in the dark ages and 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 are doing it sort of more to kind of tick a box yeah um but I'd say, for the most part, the new the new uh, generation of leaders okay. genuinely genuinely care and genuinely understand uh, the notion that, first of all, most importantly, um, treating people equally is of uh, of the utmost importance. It's a priority. But but secondly, that um, it actually will help their business. Not not only from the point of view of hey, I tick the box and I can say I have a certain percentage right. of diversity, but because it truly uh, creates a much more powerful business model. Right, and by diversity, we're not, I mean, in this context, of course, gender, but also ethnicity and uh, just perspectives, right? I, yeah. I've, I've really felt this as well, just even working in teams, whether it's sports or professional, like you really kind of feel the difference. I can't say too much yet, um, but it looks like I'll be partnering on a, on a fund wow. um, that invests uh, only in, uh, in, in uh, businesses that benefit racial minorities or businesses that are founded by racial minorities. So the issue of equality and diversity um, to me is, is, is much, much broader than gender equality, although gender equality, of course, is really important to me as well. Amazing. Um, 
going back just quickly to, to the CEOs, right? CFOs, the C-suites that you, you kind of deal with. Before we started, I, I kind of asked you just, uh, you know, uh, from a curious perspective, have you seen patterns when you're hiring top talent, mm -hmm. right, from, from your expertise? What, what are those patterns? What kind of characteristics make someone a really good CEO or CFO or COO? I think, I think the best leaders um, uh, are, are extremely well-grounded. Um, they are not uh, overly egotistical. In fact, some might be surprised by this, but I, I, I feel the best leaders uh, have deep humility. Mm. Um, so when I'm interviewing a candidate for a leadership role, yeah. I like to hear when they talk about their accomplishments that, you know, part of it was due to um, great momentum or great wind at their back uh, from market, some certain market conditions or credit uh, being given to the team that they had working with them or other things of that matter. Um, when it's all about the I, I, I get a little bit um, um, skeptical. Mm. Um, uh, I, I feel that the best leaders are the ones that uh, come at it from a point of view of, of humility and strength and, and not to get too cosmic about it, but even a, even, even a position of, of, of inner peace. Because mm. when, when you have that kind of clarity uh, and you understand your position in the universe, mm. um, you're, you're able to make really great decisions that aren't clouded by uh, toxicity or, 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 or things that um, really are not amenable to, 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 to making the firm, the firm choices when, you can, when you're faced with tough options. Wow. In your journey you know, to become a leader yourself, uh, and, and I regard you as a friend, but, but also honestly a mentor in, in many ways, I mean, maybe not directly, but um, uh, even the things you do, which I'm going to save for later, but one of the things I found within your journey as I was studying kind of your, your past is, uh, and you mentioned your mentor. Erwin mm -hmm. uh, Kotler and just curious like how did that kind of come about uh, I know he was a professor of yours but how did you really build that relationship of mentor and then him becoming really a friend mm -hmm. um, so uh, uh, Professor Kotler um, in many ways was uh, the, the, the most well-known uh, professor at, at, at McGill at the time mm -hmm. um, and uh, very prominent and respected and um, so that's one piece of it. So park that for a sec. Yeah. Second piece <laughs> is there's a very daunting exercise that, that all of the McGill law students go through. Most law schools have it. It's called moot court. Okay. So essentially, you're put in front of three pretend judges. It's three professors to argue an appeal case. And, um, and you don't know which professors you're going to get. I hadn't come across Professor Kotler before this. Um, so I walk in the room. I'm already, I'm already nervous. <laughs> <laughs> and um, who's one of the three judges? Professor Kotler. Um, so I, 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 I plead my case. And in characteristic form, he's got his glasses on top of his uh, head like this. And he's writing and he's writing and he's writing very furiously um, during the uh, presentation. My presentation's done, mm -hmm. and uh, he looks at me, and in his characteristic way, he um, complimented me for what I had done right, yeah. um, and then proceeded to list 10 brilliant points as to where I could have done better, and each point was interrelated to the, to the other, which is also a trademark of his, um, and I was fascinated, and 
I was sort of in shock and awe. <laughs> and I thought to myself, um, this is a person I can learn from and not just about the law. So I went, I went up to him after and asked if I might uh, set up an appointment to sit in his office with him to learn more. Um, is it like shadowing? Like, do you just want to see his behavior? No, just to learn more about how I could have done better on this particular okay. presentation. Wow. So um, he graciously said, absolutely, and I went into his office, and we had this great long talk, and um, I learned a lot in that one session. Um, and I ended up taking a number of his courses. I ended up as a research assistant for him in the summer, and um, the relationship just, uh, just, just rolled from there to the point now where I'm, uh, I'm a very active board member on his, um, his, in his organization. It's mm -hmm. called the Raoul Wallenberg Center for Human Rights, right. where we are uh, representing sort of the Nelson Mandela's of today in places like Saudi Arabia and Venezuela and China and Iran and all around the world. In fact, um, that's amazing. Our yeah. client, uh, Raif Badawi, mm. in uh, Saudi Arabia, has been prison in prison for a number of years for blogging on issues of human rights, has been the subject of, uh, of, of tension between the Saudi Arabian government and, uh, and Canada. It's really interesting. I mean, part of my community, you know, they're kind of early 20s, and I'm yeah. sure that's kind of why I asked. Mm -hmm. uh, they're in this process now of trying to find a mentor. And what I parsed out from, from your equation is basically no opportunity is too small. You went in there and there were three juries, but one of them intrigued you because of what he was saying and kind of the constructive feedback. But you also were proactive in asking for more feedback. That's really important. Right, and then you just grew the opportunity from there. So that's interesting. Yeah, um, and that's, like a, that. that's a pattern throughout my life. Um, okay. um, just going out and, 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 and perhaps even going out of your comfort zone, mm -hmm. um, but showing up uh, in places that are, that are important to you or interesting to you. Yeah. And, and you just never know uh, what showing up will lead to. Um, I'll, I'll give you an example of how I got into McGill Law School in the first place. Yeah. Um, which maybe I would have, maybe I wouldn't have. But uh, <laughs> what, what happened was um, I had just finished my uh, philosophy degree. Mm -hmm. And I was backpacking through Europe with a friend of mine um, and, and applied to a bunch of law schools. In Europe? Um, no, uh, in, in Canada. In Canada. But, uh, yeah, so I applied, and then I went off to Europe to with my thing. friend to see where yeah. I would get in. And, um, you know, rather than sitting home waiting for letters, <laughs> I, we decided to do this. Nice. Um, and I got into a couple of schools, but the school I wanted to, I, I most wanted to get into was, was McGill. Okay. And um, anyway, I was on a waiting list at McGill. Um, and my parents at, at the time um, were, were, were at home and they were opening up my mail. Mm. Um, but they, went, they themselves went on a vacation for a week or two and they asked our neighbor to, to, to get the mail because they said, you know, Jay wants to see if he got into McGill. Anyway, long story short, I'm in Europe, my parents are on vacation <laughs> and um, the neighbor calls my parents and says he didn't get in. Okay, so I didn't get in. Uh, they opened up a letter, he didn't get in. So uh, I got into University of Ottawa, among other schools. Shout out. So, uh, Sorry, Jay. Oh, really? Alum, man. Oh, right. cool, cool. So, <laughs> so I figured, okay, I'm going to go to Ottawa. Nice. My parents, who were so generous and amazing, they said, you know what, stay in Europe as long as you can, 
we'll go to Ottawa and get you an apartment. Okay. And, uh, you know, we'll figure it out. So I stayed in, I, I, I came home a little bit early, mm-hmm. went to Ottawa to see this apartment. My parents got me a nice apartment, um, and I figured I'm going to Ottawa. Mm-hmm. This was, uh, I don't know, probably last week in August or second to last week in August. But I decided I'm going to call the dean of McGill Law School and uh, say, uh, tell her the situation. I didn't get in, no, no hard feelings. Would it be all right if I came to see you? Just so you can tell me what in the file caused you not to, not to uh, include me. This is the lawyer in the making, right? Explaining <laughs> your case. I like. Yeah. So <laughs> no, I was happy just to go and for her to explain me why I didn't get in. So, uh, you know, I'm a young guy. I had long hair, beard. I had cut off jean shorts with the white frills or whatever. I had a, a white um, tank top on, Gee, um, and and I showed up. I mean. <laughs> Which is, in retrospect, like, what was I okay. thinking? So I show up like a crazy man to the dean of, of McGill's Law School. I walk in. I sit down. She opens the file. And she says, uh, who told you you didn't get in? So I, I explain the story. My parents were away. I was away. My neighbor. She goes, I don't know which school rejected you, but it wasn't us. You're still on the waiting list. And she Ooh. said, you know, I'm not, I'm not really supposed to interview people, but... Tell me about yourself. Wow. You know, so I did. We had a fantastic conversation. Um, She was amazing. There was great chemistry. And um, whatever, we met, and that was it. The next morning, I'm lying in bed. The phone rings. The dean of McGill Law calls me. Hi, is Jay there, please? Yes, speaking. Hi, it's Dean Jukir. I wanted to call you to tell you personally you're in. (laughs) So... You know, the point is, and that's a Amazing. pattern, I'm, I'm always motivated to just get out there, Knock talk out, yeah. to people, people are interesting to me, um, just to explore, because I think the more open you are, mm. the, more, the greater the odds you're going to find really great opportunities. Wow. You know. So had it not been for that? For that I don't know. Problem. I mean, like I say, maybe I would have gotten in anyway, maybe I wouldn't have, because I was on the waiting knows, list. Though, yeah. You yeah. might have been in Ottawa already established, you're rolling. I don't know. I don't know. Wow. Yeah, that's yeah, a fantastic yeah. story, man. It's, you know, it's not a hundred percent because of that, but uh, it couldn't have hurt. You know, yeah. But, but yeah. I, I guess the, yeah. the point is that you you were proactive. That's right? the you, point. You weren't just idle and said, "Okay, you know what? I didn't get in." You said, "Look, look okay, maybe I didn't get in, and if that's the case, fine. Let me at least know like, yeah. what." Yeah. And me. I didn't come from a position of defensiveness. I'm like, no. it's no hard feelings. Exactly. And she's like, "Well, that's." Imp-. She was actually impressed that I that I took the time to 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 want to do that. You wow. know, so. So speaking yeah. about family, and it sounds yeah. amazing, really, really supportive. Mm-hmm. Um, I follow you on Instagram, as everyone should who's watching. Uh, but what I like about your sort of content sharing, first of all, it, it's really refreshing to see you know, someone with your sort of now leadership experience and everything that you're already doing to be this kind of open. And what I like, too, is the personal angle. So you share a lot about your family, even your, your personal interests. I know you sing, you play the piano. Um, talk to me a bit about your family and, and mm-hmm. how... And and one important that is to you, but also how you create personally that uh, work-life balance. Mm-hmm. So, um, so for me, and it's reflected, I guess, in in my social media mm-hmm. posts. Um, I don't look at human rights work, women's rights work, um, helping clients build world-class teams, any of it, family. I I I look at it all as one. I don't look at it as compartments. Um, so I look at my whole world in a very holistic way. 
Um, and in that sense, it's not, it's not really a matter of um, how do you find time for this or how do you find time for that. I, I prioritize. Mm -hmm. My family is always number one sure. uh, for me and everything else revolves around that. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I generally just prioritize in a way that makes a lot of sense for me. And um, the, tech, the tech investing and the tech advisory, as an example, um, even at the early stage, is very helpful for me, even when I'm doing very large corporate assignments. Yeah. Um, because every corporation right now is worried about innovation. They're looking for candidates that understand, um, that have their finger on the pulse of, early stage tech and where the future is going, but also can play well corporately. So that's an example of how all of my worlds are intersected because I, I sort of um, mirror the kinds of candidates they're looking for, which gives me a competitive advantage. Right. Um, uh, but on the family side, I mean, I'm very fortunate. I, I, you know, I have a wife who, who's um, a tremendous partner of mine, uh, the most supportive, generous, wise person I've ever known. Mm. Um, my kids are just wonderful friends uh, of mine, um, and uh, I take pride in being able to, to be friends with, 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 uh, with my kids who share their music with me. Yeah. So, you know, for example, uh, you know, I, I probably wouldn't be as up on music if it wasn't for my kids. They're constantly showing, hey, J. Cole just came out with a new <laughs> song. You got to hear it, Dad, you know, and I appreciate that. And, yeah. you know, the sports with my son and, um, you know, it's... It, the kids are um, friends of mine, but also respectful, which is right. just a wonderful uh, combination. And uh, so how do you make that balance work? I'm always curious yeah. because, you know, often like it, it's obviously always like a kind of a, a fine line. But, you know, yeah, but you you have that personal uh, yeah. approach, but you still have, again, as you said, that, that kind of yeah. boundary. Well, I think um, how do you do that? Yeah, I think, well, the friend side is uh, I'm, you know, I think I'm just young at heart. Um, okay. So, um, <laughs> young soul. So you know, I'm a young soul. Uh, I love, I love the things that the kids are interested in. I'm interested in the same things as they are. Jay, um, you're on stage rapping, man. You're making me look like a baby boomer. I don't <laughs> know what's going on here. <laughs> so, so that's so that's the friend side. Okay. But the respect side is, you know, once in a while, I'll hear the kids sort of talking to me in a way like, like dissing me the way they might diss a friend. <laughs> it's like, and I'll remind them, it's like, whoa, like yeah. I'm your dad, you know. Uh, I'm your dad. I'm I'm your friend. I love being your friend, but you know, I nip it in the bud. You right. know, and uh, and I'm lucky that it absorbs. You know, that's really cool. So, talk to me about uh, well, speaking about the stage. I know I was just kind of joking about that, but yeah. you actually did share a stage with a rapper, and uh, you, you you did a performance and a song for your son's bar mitzvah. How did that come about? And yeah, how do you put yourself out there, like yeah, in a way so that you're fun and genuine and passionate? <laughs> I have a major, major passion for, for music. Okay. Um, Singing uh, or playing instruments, both? Um, both, as well as uh, just listening, you know. Okay. I, just, I just love music. Um, so I took classical piano lessons from grade one to grade five. And um, by grade five, I began having a lot of written homework, written theory, music theory, which I didn't like, I found boring. Um, okay. and my friends were out playing street hockey and I was like busy not only doing my regular homework I was doing music homework and I didn't like it and I tried to convince my teacher at the time to just let me play and she's like no in order to continue you have to do the written and so I quit um, wow. and then I met 
uh, a really uh, great friend. His name is Mitch Magnet, um, really talented musician who taught himself how to play piano mm. uh, and write songs. Um, when I was at, up at camp, um, when I was like 16, and uh, he taught me a different way. He taught me how to improvise and how to how to be able to sort of. If you hand me any song sheet with chords, I could play it, um, and 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 then improvise in, in between and. And that's actually a good way to, know, to learn how to songwrite as well. Okay. And uh, we developed a relationship and we wrote a bunch of songs together. Um, and what sort of th things do you, do you like? What, what kind of songs do you sing? I, I, I love ballads. Okay. <laughs> I love pop ballads. So the song, the song you heard, it's, it's essentially a ballad with like a cool beat and, yeah. and a rap because I know my son likes hip hop. Okay. Um, but I love, I love ballads. So I've, I've written a song for every member. Okay. Of, of my uh, of my family, okay. I wrote a song for, uh, and I co-wrote most of this. Uh, actually, all of it, pretty much, with with this music partner of mine. Okay. Um, but the story behind that song for my son was, uh, it uh, it was uh, time for his bar mitzvah, mm -hmm. um, and um, we had a party that night, mm -hmm. and I decided that um, I didn't want to. Um, do a speech. I, I wanted to surprise him with a song. Um, change it up, huh? Yeah, change it up a little bit. And, That's a major switch, and, though. It's a major <laughs> switch. <laughs> so I remembered there was this, um, there was this piece that um, my, my uh, music writing partner, Mitch, um, put together just, just improvising, doing a sound check with new equipment. Mm. But I found there was something very, very beautiful there. So I called him up and I said, would you mind if I took that and ran with it with a friend of mine, Aeon Clark. That's the guy on the yeah. song, um, who's actually legendary. Very talented. Yeah. He's legendary, actually, in the Toronto scene. He's got one of the best voices in the world. Wow. Um, with a track record of having written with, with many of the biggest artists. Um, so, and, and singing on uh, tracks with some of the biggest artists. Um, I got to know him from my daughter's bat mitzvah. He, 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 okay. he, performed, he, performed. he performed. So I hit him up and I said, look, I've got this piece of a song. Will you uh, collaborate with me to, to finish it and to produce it in a cool way? Wow. And, uh, and we'll perform it live and surprise my son with it. And he said, yeah, man, I'm in. Like, it ended up, for him, being one of his favorite experiences. We still talk about it. That's um, really cool. And we went in the studio, and he brought in uh, a really tremendously talented piano player who helped produce it. And, um, and, and you see the result in, in the YouTube. And, that, that's uh, amazing. It was, it's, it's actually one of the most special moments in my, in my life to be able to give that to my son. Yeah. yeah. And even the lyrics, I mean, uh, kind of start in the video, at least that I saw, it yeah. was when I become a man, you know, it was, uh, was kind of touching in that Boys sense. Boys become like, a man. Yeah. yeah. It's, uh, yeah. What is that sort of experience like for you? Like, what, what are you trying to pass on uh, to, your, to your kids? I mean, from, from what, you, what, what you learn, whether it's modeling the behavior, but what do you hope that, that they one day become? Uh, just, just loving, uh, just loving human beings. Okay. Yeah. Just, just wanted to show, show my son and my kids and my wife and my family and my friends. Just want to show them love, you know, and uh, instill, instill in them the importance of giving to others. Mm. In, in a, yeah. in a world that I, I guess even in a city, a style of back, yeah. like Toronto, for example, you talk about love, and yeah. uh, I think there is that. Uh, but also, I mean, we're we're sort of so driven here. Mm -hmm. You know, you see it like at 5, 6 a.m. People are like just running towards, you yeah. know, work. And there's a huge startup community as well. 
there's something, a component that, especially being an investor, right, an, an angel on the side, um, you, you also talk about mental health. It's something you work with Director X on. Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. How important is that to you? What sort of advice would you give? Because I know a lot of entrepreneurs mm -hmm. or friends of mine, and they struggle with that aspect. Mm -hmm. You know, the grind, the hustle. Mm -hmm. I was, uh, you know, uh, sort of, how do you say it? Kind of obliv oblivious of that as well. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. For me, it was like hustle, hustle, 100%, no sleep. Everybody kind of goes through that uh, yeah. phase. Yeah. What advice would you have? I think uh, focusing on mental health is a, an extremely important thing, mm. um, and there's there's definitely a number of ways you can you can come at it depending on what works for you. Okay. Um, I think having some white space and empty space to to, to, to be able to just be by yourself, just to um, dial back, just to dial back. Whether it means going for walks, um, um, playing the piano, if you can, uh, you know, massage therapy. Uh, it could be meditation. I enjoy playing the piano. I find that very, very relaxing. I'll, when I'm working over, uh, yeah, I, I work pretty much seven days a week. Okay. When I'm working on the weekend, I'll take a lot of piano breaks. Okay. Um, there's just so many things that, that you can do. Whatever works for you. Exercise is really important. Um, mm. Eating well. Uh, but if, if you don't, uh, getting as much sleep as you can. Right. Um, I'm, I'm prob I could probably use more sleep than I, than I get. Yeah. But but at least being cognizant of it okay. is really, really important. The uh, project <coughs> that I'm supporting Director X on, we did, a, we did an article in the Toronto Star on that, is uh, it relates to um, <coughs> um, uh, gun violence. Mm. Um, Which I saw him know, speak recently at the yeah, Social Light Conference. Yeah, so there's, you know, it was sort of the summer of the gun, sadly, in Toronto. It's like becoming yeah. like any other American city, and uh, that has to stop. and. Um, Director X, um, unfortunately, was was shot. He wasn't the intended victim, um, yeah. like in 2015 or so. And he began looking at the issue really deeply, including the root causes. Um, and he, he came to understand that the prefrontal cortex is the place in the brain where decisions are made. And, and, and if, if, if that area of the brain is, is small or deficient, um, there's there's a higher likelihood of someone lashing out irrationally with violence, um, and we've we've come to study the issue and to understand that uh, there's been examples of uh, situations like in San Francisco there was a school which um, had sadly a lot of violence in and around it and, and absenteeism and they put in this meditation program and um, a year later uh, the results were astounding. It, mm. It's one of the happiest schools now in San Francisco. Absenteeism has gone way, way down. Um, uh, kids are uh, much more engaged and much more motivated. Um, they did something similar in a prison in Mexico, which is a very violent prison. Yeah. And um, the results have been just unbelievable. So now we're working on implementing a pilot program um, or in like three schools right now in Toronto and, and seeing uh, the results that we can come up with and then build it and continue building building programs from there really across the world. Mm -hmm. um, the good news is this prefrontal cortex can grow, um, can grow can grow back in a much healthier way through uh, mindful meditation. Yeah, especially, I mean, if you have a good support system. I mm -hmm. saw recently Denzel Washington was sort of talking about, uh, you know, the gener generational differences, but he really pointed to parents. 
-hmm. He said, look, like if, if, my, if my parents were abusive and yes. uh, they did certain things to, to hurt me or, or really cause me mm -hmm. enduring pain, I'm going to now lash out and, and continue that. That's then right. I'm going to bring that to my kids and it's never really going to solve itself. That's You're, right. It's really a fuel to the fire. Yeah. Uh, and, and unfortunately, a lot of uh, individuals who are in this predicament lack that true support system, whether it's friends or That's right. partners. Or well, they say that um, uh, kids who've gone through neglect and abuse are the ones that have these deficiencies in the prefrontal cortex. Interesting. Yeah. But the good news is it can be fixed. It can be improved. Yeah. What's a, what's a day in the sorry what's what's a what's a sort of day in the life look like for Jay? I think that, that especially just having honestly, I don't know how, how much we spent so far, but it's been like thirty minutes, and we're talking about so much, right? right. So, so many things going on in your world. So just something that kind of popped up in my head is, and there might not be a day to day, but mm -hmm. give a, give us an example. Like you wake up, how does how does your day start running? Right. Um, Every day, every week is different. I just got back from Los Angeles. I, you know, uh, we're I was there in for Los Angeles all week and with, with some tremendous meetings and, and, and events and whatnot, um, including including Move the Da, which is another another um, yeah. another movement to help advance women that I'm deeply deeply involved in. Shout out to Jody Kovitz. Yes, Jody Kovitz. <laughs> um, but uh, typically, I'm up at like six in the morning. Okay. Uh, have breakfast uh, at home uh, unless I have a breakfast meeting. Okay. And I head to the uh, head to the office. Shake and bake, then. <laughs> Shake and bake. Let's make <laughs> it happen, man. Yeah. Um, and then I'm pretty much booked all day with meetings and whatnot. I try to have some white space to answer emails as mm. much as I can. And, and um, you know, I'm, pr I'm typically home pretty late. <laughs> Are you big on reading? I know that in the back there we saw a couple of books. Are you reading anything now, or a um, couple of recommendations from Jay? Yeah, I haven't, I haven't been reading uh, that much in terms of books, uh, but I'm constantly consuming um, uh, current events, uh, articles, articles, um, and it's, it, it's a very, very wide range of interest, philosophical, um, political, business. Um, it's, it's a really, really wide range of consumption, um, but not, I haven't been reading that many books of late. Yeah. What, what's one thing if you were to look back? I'm just doing like these fire sure. rapid ones. But what's one thing if you look back, something that you learned that kind of changed your life as a tipping point? Um, well, you know, when I was younger, mm. I, was, I, I, was, I was a little bit quicker to, um, when I was having discussions with people about politics or business or whatever, right. um, a little bit quicker to dis to, to disagree because I don't and, and in in the interest of having a fulsome conversation yeah um, but what I found and because I don't take those kinds of conversations personally I just find them really really interesting mm -hmm. but what I found is I've got to I've got to read the audience a little bit better okay. because a lot of people take things really personally and there's no point yeah. <laughs> and there's no po point engaging uh, or disagreeing. I actually, I actually find it a compliment okay. uh, when someone will disagree and we'll go back and forth and we'll, we'll have you know, deep philosophical uh, disagreements or discussions. But I, I've learned as I've gotten older to, to, to dial it back again and read the audience, the audience. who, who can, I shouldn't say handle it, but who, who doesn't take things personally. Who's receptive. If you understand, who's receptive, yeah. exactly. What's your yeah. favorite song? I got to ask this one. I know it's going to be hard, Jay. You got to give me one. Oh, my God. <laughs> and I prefer it if you sing it. I don't know. Just give me a little tune. 
If I know it. Are you, are you, first, are you a Sinatra fan? I just got Imagine John Lennon. Really? Imagine John nice. Lennon. Yeah, I, I love Sinatra. I love Huge everything. Sinatra fan, man. Yeah. I, what's funny is I always used to joke that I would say I'm a millennial stuck in a... Uh, baby boomer's body because I uh, on the wall right behind my bed I have a huge Sinatra poster that says confidence is king and I have a vinyl right next to it and I always play like fly, fly me to the moon and come fly with me oh yeah yeah I, I know all those songs I love all those songs I love I love all every single genre of music I love you can find kind of yeah yeah, yeah yeah last thing uh, before we end this and I really appreciate this conversation man my uh, pleasure I'm sure a lot of people are going to appreciate it too um What's that one thing that you would leave someone with right now? Think, you know, in my community, it's, again, 20 to 30, someone maybe starting out their career, still in school, or in the midst of it. Mm-hmm. What, would, what, would you, what would you give us pearls? It could be one, two, or three. Chase your passions. Okay. Chase your dreams. Everything else will fall into place. Jay Rosenzweig, it's a pleasure, man. Thank you. Thanks, man. Cheers, guys.